It's good to see each of you as we spend Mother's Day together and worship and rejoicing in the fact that uh, God is with us as uh, has been our theme this morning. Um, it's always good to have family here and it's so good to have our daughter Grace here and Mary Beth and Sarah Preston and the family, Cisco. These are our niece, our great niece and our great great nieces. <laughs> so and our grandson, uh, Lawrence, and daughter, Grace. So we've got a house full with our family today, and I'm thankful that uh, we can all be together on this special day. Well, as we look at God's Word together, we think of um, the fact that we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and I've been kind of going through different parts of these chapters it's hard to hit everything wonderful in here uh, because of God's Word being so uh, deep and encouraging to us, but we're going to do our best to get all the main things. So if you would look in chapter 5, I'm going to read for you today from Hebrews chapter 5 beginning at verse 11, and then I'm going to read into chapter 6, uh, Hebrews 5:11 through chapter 6, verse 12. This is God's Word. Concerning Him we have much to say. In other words, concerning Jesus, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name and in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. This is God's word. Let's bow and have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you that this morning we can come to you in our weakness, that we can come to you, Father, looking for the strength of your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would open the ears of our understanding, that we would see and hear and understand and believe and obey, that we would follow you in all that you have for us. We thank you that you love us like this, that you've called us together, that you've given us grace. And Father, we do thank you for our families. We thank you for our mothers and grandmothers, those that stood before us in the faith, who loved us and prayed for us, and those, Father, that uh, we now pray for. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You and I live in a world full of warnings, don't we? Sometime when we're going down the interstate, you know, you'll be cruising along the interstate, and all of a sudden there'll be a big, one of those a big electronic signs above the, uh, above the highway. And on that electronic sign, it will say something like this. There's a crash at exit 131. Be prepared. You know, the traffic's going to slow down. Expect delays. Or when we are watching television, and it seems like this happens more and more, you're watching something on TV, and then it comes time for the commercial. And the commercial comes on, and it says, don't take this medication if you've been diagnosed with whatever the disease is, and then don't take this medication if you're nursing pregnant or expecting to become pregnant, or don't take this medication if you're allergic to any of its ingredients. Now, how we know, we don't know, <laughs> but don't take it. Uh, warnings. There are these warnings everywhere, aren't they? Warnings about different products on the market or warnings about things that are happening or warnings about some uh, event in the news. Well, the author of the book of Hebrews is giving us several warnings here. He's giving us warnings um, about, about life. He's giving us warnings about the faith. He's speaking primarily to Jewish Christians who've come to faith in Jesus, and he's telling them not to abandon Jesus and to return to Judaism because, you see, some of these folks were being tempted to go back to the Jewish faith rather than to staying as firm believers in Jesus. Now, our author has already said in opening parts of this letter that Jesus is greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than the angels, and Jesus is the great high priest, which we looked at last week. He's our sympathetic high priest who knows when we're weak and we can come to him at any time for grace and mercy. Well, Hebrews not only talks about how great a help Christ is and how great he is as our high priest, but this book also gives us these real warnings. One of the first warnings we saw was in Hebrews 4 verse 1, where it said this, Therefore let us fear, while a promise remains of entering his rest, lest any one of you seem to have come short of it. So the first thing, you know, this author is, this, this first warning that he gives us is don't go to the door of faith and stop right there without entering into the true faith. 
Don't go right up to the door of believing and stop, but go on, progress on, believe and receive Jesus. Don't go to the door of salvation and refuse to enter and be saved. Because that's what the people in the wilderness did. And he brings it up over and over again. The people in the wilderness went right to the edge of the promised land. And then they said, oh, we can't go in. Those people are giants. They're too big. They have fortified cities. We'll never be able to take this. And, of course, Joshua and Caleb, those two faithful leaders said, no, we can go in. We can take it. He says, the author of the book of Hebrews says, don't be like the people in the wilderness who went right to the door of the promised land and then wouldn't enter. They refused to believe, and so they had to stay in the wilderness for 40 years, and he said that whole generation had to die because they wouldn't follow God and they wouldn't be obedient. The author three times in uh, this chapter previous to this says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, receive the Savior. Don't harden your hearts. That's the first warning. The second warning he gives us here in chapter 5 at verses 11 and 12. He says, concerning him, we have much to say to you, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be shallow in your faith. Don't be intellectually lazy. Don't be dull in your hearing of the word of God. Instead, um, come and listen and hear and believe. He's saying, don't remain a spiritual baby. It's the babies that stay on mother's milk nursing. And he says, instead, you need to be maturing as believers. You need to start being able to eat solid food, strong meat, instead of just the, uh, the baby's milk of the spiritual life. They should have moved on to spiritual maturity by now. Uh, he says they should have been able to handle the spiritual meat, but they couldn't yet. You know what their problem was? He says their problem was that they were stuck at the beginnings of the faith. Because in chapter 6, in verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary things about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works or faith towards God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He says... You've gotten stuck on the beginnings of things and you haven't grown. So he's warning them not to get stuck. They should have moved on to spiritual maturity. Now, um, it seems that these believers were tempted to rethink all that they had thought about when they were in their, as Jews in their Jewish background. The author of Hebrews is saying, to them, go, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the shadows about the truth. He says, go to the reality of Christ himself who's fulfilled all those doctrines taught to you in Judaism. The second warning is, don't stay spiritual babies. Don't be stuck at the very beginning. Go on to spiritual maturity. 
Now, as we look at this, we're reminded that Christ is the great, is the great fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, isn't he? Christ fulfilled all those prophecies about him. Think about how many prophecies. I think Josh McDowell said there are over 300 prophecies of, of Christ or implications about Christ uh, in the scriptures. Jesus is the one who is fulfilled. He's the only one that ever could have fulfilled all those prophecies. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. He says, quit looking. Don't, you know, once you've reached faith in Jesus Christ, don't go back and look at the shadows of things that we believed in our spiritual infancy, that were pointing to Jesus, but believe instead in the Messiah, the one that God has sent for us. The third warning he gives is, don't be someone who has tasted the things of Christ, but never commits his life to him. In Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, it says, And this is the case, excuse me, for in this case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, these verses have caused a lot of controversy in the Christian church. These verses have thrown a lot of people off. And we know that there's a lot of discussion about these verses. But let's look carefully at what's here to see what God's Word is saying to us. Many of the people in the wilderness saw the miracles of God. They saw those miracles, didn't they? They saw them in Egypt. They saw them in the wilderness. They saw the plagues. They saw Moses lead them through the Red Sea. They saw the, the, uh, Moses strike the rock and the water came out. They saw the manna that came down every morning that they picked up and they cooked and they ate. They saw the pillar of fire at night and how it protected them. They saw all these miracles and they had an experience of God. They were moved by the words of Joshua and Moses. They saw that these guys were sent from God and they listened. To put it in our language, they were enlightened by seeing God's work. They tasted of the heavenly gifts. The Holy Spirit dealt with them about their sins. You know, they were convicted at times that they had sinned and they apologized to Moses. It reminds us that the people in Jesus' day were like that. They were moved when they heard Jesus. They would, thousands of them would gather around so that they could listen to him, to his every word. They could taste the goodness of God as Jesus healed people and ministered to the poor and to the needy. They sensed the coming of the kingdom when Jesus healed people and preached and called them to repentance. But they were only tasting those gifts from a distance. Many of them didn't embrace Jesus at all. We remember that the crowd that said on Sunday, Hosanna to the King of Kings, you know, Lord save us. And they threw palm branches down in front of Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. And yet a few days later, what did they do? When Pilate wanted to free him and Herod wanted to get rid of Jesus, and they said, 
No, don't let him loose. Give us Barabbas instead. Don't set this man free. Give us Barabbas. The crowd that was so behind Jesus four or five days previously now has turned against him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They tasted of the heavenly gifts. They saw the wonder of what he was doing, but they didn't believe and trust him. There were some that were so close to the kingdom that they could taste it. And then they walked away, like the rich young ruler, for instance, who came right up to the door of believing, Lord, what do I have to do? And he said, put the Lord first in your life and come follow me. And he walked away sad because he wouldn't do it. So close. The reason we know that... Uh, that, these, that there were many people that, of course, believed about Jesus, followed Jesus in the crowds, but wouldn't follow him later on, wouldn't trust him as the Son of God. The reason we know this is because the Scripture has told us this, and it tells us that no true Christian can ever lose his salvation. No true Christian can ever lose his salvation. No one who's ever rested his full hope in Jesus can ever lose his salvation. That's because of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25. Listen to this. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save forever. That word means to save completely. It's the word for the end of all things. Jesus is the word to save us completely. He who began a good work in you will keep it to the end, Paul says in Philippians. This was his, his preaching and teaching there. The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing, that Jesus is able to save completely and to the end those who drew all near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, the reason that many people believe or think that true Christians can be saved one day and lost the next is because they're saying, well, they sinned and did something bad. They didn't live up to their faith. They turned away, and so they were lost again. But Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is always interceding for us. So what's Jesus doing? He's saying, Father, yes, they sinned. He's our advocate at the right hand of the Father, remember? And it says... He's there, he's saying, yes, Father, they sinned just now, but my blood has covered all their sins. Since I have died for them and their sin is gone, then they're living with and in my righteousness credited to their account. And remember, whatever Jesus does, he does perfectly. He does completely. When he saves us, he saves us completely. If he doesn't save us completely, if we have to keep ourselves saved by living a perfect life afterwards, you're going to go crazy because you're, you're not going to ever be able to live a perfect life. You're not going to live a perfect day. We sin against God in thought, word, and deed. And we have to come in repentance every day and say, Lord, I messed up. I sinned. I did the wrong thing. But I know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin, so I am not lost, but saved, because Jesus has died for me. What Jesus does, he does perfectly. If anyone gets confused about Hebrews 6, 
There are a ton of verses that we ought to take into account. And remember, you don't build your theology on any one verse or two, but what we do is we look at the whole teaching of Scripture. You know, certain groups have taken one verse and they blow it out of context and they build a theology on it and it's a theology against the whole rest of the Scripture. Let's look at the verses that talk to us about what it means to be saved in Christ and why when Christ finishes the work in us, He does that perfect work in it. He keeps us. Even if you begin with the, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, if you begin with John 3:16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. What about John 5, 24? He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. It's, it's hard to get you can be saved one day and lost the next when you read those verses. What about John 6, 37? Let me read, let me go back and read that one for you. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And you know that's the Greek double negative. It's the equivalent, I will not never do it. It's the double negative right in there. I will certainly never do it, is what our English versions usually say. But it's that double negative. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise him up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Is there any equivocation there? There's no equivocation. Jesus says, those who have turned to me, who have trusted in me, and believed in me will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He will not ever let us perish. This is the will of him that sent me, that I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 27 to 30 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man snatch them out of my hand, for I and the Father are one. In other words, the strength of the Father is holding us in Jesus Christ. Susan's dad used to tell the story about a man with his son, and he said, let's say a man is holding his three- or four-year-old son or daughter, and they walk up to the corner, and it's a busy street. And he says he doesn't just hold the hand sometimes. Sometimes he holds the wrist. He gets a good hold of that wrist because there's traffic there, and if that child darts out into the street, that child could get hit. But because his or her father is holding them strongly by their hand, then that child is not going to get away and not going to veer into the traffic. God is holding us with his hand. He says, I am taking care of you. Nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. And don't forget Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus.
If you believe that true Christians can be saved one day and lost the next day, you're going to have to undo a whole bunch of Bible verses. You know, Thomas Jefferson just cut out the things in the Bible he didn't like. <laughs> he didn't believe in it. He just cut his Bible up. Well, we're not going to do that, though, are we? We're not going to cut our Bible up and cut out verses that seem to go against what we've been taught all our life. You know, the reason is that a truly saved person is never going to be lost again because what Jesus does, he does perfectly and he does forever. And he says, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. If I saved myself by being a good person, by keeping the law, by being kind to my neighbor, by giving to charity, by donating my body to science, if I, if I did everything good that I could possibly do, that would still... Uh, that would still never negate what I'd done to violate God's laws. I would still be a sinful person. I can't save myself. My, my good works are not going to save me. Only Jesus can save me. He died the perfect death on the cross. That's what we celebrate all the time. He died completely for us on the cross. He went to the cross for you and me. He saved you and me. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. He went to the cross. I didn't. He died for our sins. He's the one that's keeping us from dying forever and being separated from, from him in hell. He is the one who loved us with an everlasting love and draws us with cords of compassion. In Hebrews chapter 6, the argument by the author is this, that God has made um, a promise to save us forever. In verses 17 and 18, of Hebrews chapter 6 it says this in the same way God desiring to show even more to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose he interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us the hope set before us is eternal life. And it's not just a wish, but a certainty. Because Jesus has purchased it for us. And God is the one who in the very beginning with Abraham said, I'm blessing you, Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants throughout history. I'm going to bless you and bless all those who bless you. And I'm going to give you the wonder of these descendants. And he swore an oath to Abraham. Does God ever break his word? If God can break his word, then he's a liar. If God is a liar, he's not good. If God is not good, then he's not an infinite God, but he's the infinite force of evil. He's the devil. If God doesn't keep his word, if he doesn't keep all of his promises, then there's no hope for us. If God doesn't keep his word, we're all in deep trouble. But God keeps his word. And it says here, God swore because he couldn't find anybody greater than himself to swear by. He swore by himself. In other words, he says, I swear by myself this oath to you, Abraham, that I'll be a God to you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant. And then, what's the other ground of our assurance? The other ground of our assurance is God can never lie. God not only swore an oath, 
but his word is good forever because it's impossible for him to lie. That's what this verse says. God swore an oath and he can't ever lie, so his word is good, it's as good as gold, it's good as everything. Nothing else can match that. God can never lie to you. So if you've really trusted Christ, if he's your savior, if you're trusting him to be your sin bearer, that he went to the cross for you and paid for your sins, and you're resting all your hope in him, not in your good works, then you are in Christ, and he's given you his righteousness, and he's opened heaven for you, and he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, and one day I'm coming to get you, and I'm going to take you to where I am, that where I am, you may be with me forever. We're going to have to cut that out of our Bibles if it's not true. If a, lost, if a person can be saved one day and lost the next. It just doesn't fly. It doesn't go with the Word of God. It doesn't go with the work of Christ. It doesn't go with the Scriptures that we've got before us. The problem is that there are people who ought to worry. The people who ought to worry when they read the Bible are the people who come and they only taste of salvation. They only taste of the things of eternal life. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they give money to the poor. Maybe they help Christian causes. But they think that's enough and they don't trust Jesus. They may have been convicted of their sin sometime, but they didn't go any further to ask Jesus to come in and save them. That's the person that ought to worry. I had a friend in Western Carolina when we lived over there. He was a, my mechanic. And I used to go see him all the time. One day he called me and he told me that his wife was sick, that she'd been diagnosed with cancer. She was just in her 40s. And I went to see them and I prayed with them and talked with them and encouraged them to come to church. He never came to church. Um, I asked them later on about, I asked her later on particularly about her faith. And I went over the gospel with her again and I asked her if she had received Christ and she said, I think I have. And I said, would you like to make sure? And so we prayed for her to receive Christ and for her to trust, put all of her place, all of her trust in Jesus as her Savior and Lord. Her husband didn't. After a while, after she passed away, I had several opportunities to witness to my friend. And I presented the gospel to him. And several times he was uncomfortable. Boy, he was sweating. He was, he listened and he knew what I was saying was right, but he would not, he would not repent of his sins and receive Jesus. He would put me off. He would just say, we're going to have to stop. I could tell that the Holy Spirit was dealing with him, but each time I talked to him, you know, he stopped short of repenting. And I'm saying to you, that's a dangerous place to be. Now, the good news is, my associate pastor went to see him later on when he got sick and went to the hospital with him, saw him, presented the gospel to him, and he made a profession of faith. And I trust that that was real and that the Lord really worked in him, and I believe he did. But you know, when you come right up to that door, 
Don't just shut the door. Don't just say, I'm not going any further. Don't just say, I, I can't put my trust in this. I've got to believe that I'm good enough in myself to make it to heaven. You know, the scripture says that people should be worried who will stop like that, just like we saw here in the book of Hebrews. And it also says for us to look for fruit. Because remember, it talks in here about looking for fruit. It says ground that drinks up the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those um, whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. In other words, look for the fruit. You remember how Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. Jesus said, beware the false prophets prophets, because you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are figs from thistles. So you then will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's a dangerous thing to come close and not to receive Christ, not to repent of your sins and receive Christ. It's a dangerous thing for us to say we're Christians, and, but we look at our life and we don't see any fruit of love, any fruit of repentance, any fruit of faith, any fruit of generosity to our neighbor, or love for the scriptures, or tenderness of heart and mind before the Lord, having no desire to be worshiping with his people, or any of those things. If you see all those things, or if someone has those things in their life, they need to question whether or not they're in the faith. The person who's truly trusted Jesus as the sacrifice for their sin should not be worried. But the person who doesn't see any fruit in his or her life should be worried. They should say, what's wrong with me? Why is there no sense of God's presence? Why is there no love for the scriptures? Why is there no generosity in my heart? Why is there no desire for me to have fellowship with the other believers who are believing in Christ like I say I am? Look to the fruit. That's what Jesus said. And one of the most dangerous things in here is the part where he talks about the person that should be worried is the person who fiercely opposes the gospel of Christ. You know, um, in looking at these verses where he says he crucifies Christ afresh and things like that, one commentator says, this person is fiercely in opposition to Christ and to his gospel. He is publicly in rebellion against Christian things and he has a determination to bring Christ's work to an end. When you see that, you can say, that's a danger sign. There's somebody who's actively opposing the gospel of Christ who's attacking it, who's trying to get rid of it, who's trying to keep people from believing. They're in a dangerous place. You remember when the, Paul was on one of his missionary journeys and there was a guy there that tried to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. And what did Paul do? He says, you're in the bonds of iniquity. And he spoke against him. And one man became blind because of the judgment of God on him for opposing the gospel. Jesus said that those who, are, who try to ruin the faith of new believers and of children who believe 
there's a, that's a place of danger and judgment as well. And you know, I have to say that I am concerned when I see things at universities and see teachings around that are trying to, to say that the Christian faith is all a lie and the scriptures didn't say this and Jesus never claimed to be God and the scriptures aren't reliable and it's not true and you can't believe it and no person with any mind or intellect believes things like that anymore. That's dangerous. That's dangerous because what did Jesus say about the people who cause little ones to stumble? He said it'd be better for them to have a millstone around their neck and be thrown into the depths of sea and drowned than to subvert the faith of one of these little ones who believe in me. Those are the dangerous things that the scripture warns us about. But the scripture tells us that all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are safe in him and safe forever. Because what he does is his work is perfectly and he's going to bring it to all completion. Remember, he says um, that he's going to finish it on the last day. He's going to raise us up on the last day. Jesus is the one said, uh, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for you, that he paid for all of your sins there? Then be comforted in the fact that whoever has the Son has life. Be comforted in the fact that whoever has the Son has life. If you're not sure, if you don't see your life yielded to Christ, then turn to him today. And may I say that with all of my heart. Turn to him today. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And rest in that one who was our Messiah, our King, our High Priest, the one who died in our place, because he saves all who truly come to him. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you that you've sent us a sure and complete Savior in Jesus. That what he did on the cross was done well. It was done completely. And we know that Jesus said, it is finished. <clears throat> it is paid. We know that he has paid the price for our sin and redemption. And we thank you for his great work. We pray that you'd be with us this week, that we'd be a light in the darkness to others. That we'd love people with your love, that we would be gracious and welcoming, that we would call all men and women and children to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.